everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. From the beginning of human times, individuals across nations have historically been sharing their assets for use with the local network like friends and families. While sharing has always been a common practice among friends and family in recent years, the concept of sharing has moved beyond friends and family into a cost-effective business and economic model that is rapidly going global. That is mainly because digital technologies are disrupting traditional models and are allowing individuals and entities across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia to go beyond ownership concept and give them the ability to share. As a result, from information to intelligence, cars to homes, softwares to clouds, satellites to space stations, tools to technology, each one of us is now able to share our assets from across cyberspace, geospace, and space, in short referred to as CGS, and benefit from it. So when the emerging sharing economy allow each one of us to financially benefit from our underused or unused assets from across CGS, we are seeing the beginning of innovative business models of shared services and shared products where the technology platforms are enabling asset owners and those seeking to access those assets to find each other. Since the sharing economy is rapidly growing from a fundamental concept to a profitable powerhouse and is reshaping our economic models at a lightning pace, it is important to evaluate where we are heading and what will be the implications of sharing economy on the society. To discuss the rise of sharing economy further, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Roy Tizana to Risk Roundup. Dr. Tizana is a senior scientific advisor of Slim, senior advisor to the World Future Society and scientific advisor to Tuki, the new sharing economy. He is based in United States. Welcome, Dr. Tizana. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Hi, I'm honored to be here. Wonderful, Dr. Tizana. So let's talk about the asset west before we go on with the sharing economy discussion. Now, irrespective of knowledge, information, or physical assets, unused value is wasted value. What is the state of waste you see across nations, its government, industries, and organizations and academia today? So what we see today is that knowledge and data and information become the most important uh, things, basically, in the world. And assets, infrastructure, vehicles are becoming less important. What's important is now the, uh, the layer of information that connects between all of those. And we are seeing uh, we're seeing it uh, in the sharing economy in Uber, in Airbnb, in other companies that connect between those who have assets and those who, who have infrastructure and want uh, to share them with others. Basically, want to rent the external layer, the higher layer of information. So the sharing economy is basically what uh, allows people uh, to use their assets in the most efficient way possible. That is very true. It is the sharing of assets. Now, there are a lot of people who question whether it's actually sharing because people think that sharing means that you you are riding a car and you just let someone else, you know, ride with you. Uh, and that is actually sharing. But when you, when there is a company as a, in a layer between the person who is sharing his asset or his or her asset and the person who is trying to access the asset, there is a, you know, 
middle layer involved and there is always a price involved so there are a lot of people questioning whether it's actually sharing that it should be called excess economy but that is a topic of you know debate for another time now the sharing as you just discussed i mean as we uh, talked about it briefly in the introduction is that it's not a new concept it has been happening over the years from the beginning of human times so from your assessment what exactly drove the fundamentals of sharing to go beyond the local network to global well it's uh, all a result of uh, several driving forces first of all we have better connectivity more than ever 95% of the world population has a cellular uh, reception the number of uh, of subscriptions to cellular networks around the world is uh, over 7 uh, uh, over 7 billion subscriptions and what this means is that uh, we can all share resources at a better uh, time resolution which means that even if um, i have a vacant spot in my in my car for just 10 minutes i can immediately report on that in uh, using my smartphone and if someone is interested in that uh, in that in that seat in that position he'll be able to contact me immediately the other force that that is uh, uh, that is being manifested is that we are all becoming smarter and wealthier and richer and uh, the, the level of water rises for everyone so more people than ever before have cars which they can share with each other more people have uh, have uh, apartments of their own and people uh, know uh, reading and writing the uh, the percentage of literate people around the world is around 85% for adults and around 91% uh, for the youths so suddenly people can take part in this new economy and they can understand how to you know how to price their assets and how to put them for sale or for uh, rent online and the last uh, the, the last uh, force last driving driving force that uh, we see is that uh, of automation because automation enables uh, the sharing eco- the sharing uh, economy companies it enables them to connect between lots of people at a dramatically lowered cost um, in in a proportion to what uh, was required just a few years ago for example think about uber uber is all about automated algorithms that connect between the drivers to the to their potential uh, passengers that uh, tell the drivers how to you know how to how to move around on the road that collects uh, information about the drivers and about the passengers in the form of uh, stars and the form of ratings just think about it because if uh, uber were in existence 10 or 20 years ago think about the fact that uh, uber would have had to uh, to hire people to call each and every driver and passenger and ask them what did you think about your driver what do you think about your passenger obviously that would not have been possible so because of automation we can uh, t- we, we can suddenly collect information and ratings about everyone who are taking part in the sh- in the sharing economy and once we have that information we know whether we can trust people or not so we are actually using automation to increase people's trust of each other yes well, that is an excellent point that the you know Yes you're sorry about that you're absolutely right that we are able to increase the trust in the system and we are the connectivity is at the center of this without the you know connected computers and uh, computer code and internet 
in cyberspace, we would not have been able to reach this point that we have these evolving models by which we can share. And I mean, if you look at the asset all across nations in forms of not only just the uh, data and information or, you know, pro physical assets like homes and cars and all that, but th there's so much uh, unused uh, assets in terms of human resources, idle time, free time, there's so much that can be used into and bring them into the uh, central pool in the economic model all across nation. So there is a huge potential with this, you know, technology that is providing us and the automation, you are right about that, that without automation, a lot um, of these things would have been so difficult. Yeah, I would also say that the sharing economy in a very real way um, will help us save the earth. Because as we know, we keep on utilize, we keep on, uh, um, we keep on using resources. We keep on depleting the Earth's uh, resources. We keep on uh, manufacturing new cars, building new homes, while at the same time we have so much infrastructure and so many assets that are not utilized to the best effect. Just think about what would have happened if all the cars on the roads in, in a city had their entire, uh, their entire capacity uh, full with passengers. You would, you would have had a quarter, maybe, uh, maybe even less than that, uh, of uh, the number of cars you currently have on the roads. So the sharing economy allows us to make the best use uh, in the resources that uh, we have right now. Yes, absolutely. And then we don't waste resources and we don't create the burden on our resources. So that is a really good beneficial uh, point uh, that the sharing economy is bringing. But there are also a lot of people who get concerned that uh, the whole idea of owning assets, you know, over the years, every individual or, uh, uh, you know, was trying to buy homes, trying to buy cars. And that was kind of like, you know, uh, playing as a buffer, you know, for them in, when it uh, the, when there are hard times. So now people are thinking that, you know, because these sharing economies are going so global and it's on such a large scale that only few people would, you know, own the assets. And that probably would take away the resilience power of the for the individuals in times of bad that how would they cope up because they won't have any assets left. At the same time, we are also seeing that young generation, the millennials, they don't like to, you know, owns, uh, own the cars or, uh, yeah. you know, just uh, have the burden of driving and all that. I mean, I believe me, if I don't have to drive, I would like to, I don't want to drive. So it is, uh, it is a very effective model because then you can sit in the back of the car, you can read, you can do a lot of progress, you know, productive things. You don't have to waste your time and energy on driving and keeping an eye on the road. But uh, again, there are a lot of, you know, concerns also growing, but uh, basically the sharing economies allows individuals or groups to make money and uh, financially benefit from any of their underused or available assets. Um, where physical assets, I, I see that right now, there is a lot of attention on the physical assets like homes and cars. But is only the physical assets that is that are being shared right now, or do you see a trend towards sharing the digital assets or assets in the space also? We're definitely seeing a movement from ownership to subscription, from a from owning something to using it one time, two times, uh, three times, and then letting it go. And we're seeing it not only in the sharing economy, so to speak, but to, we're also seeing it. Well, in every possible uh, field. For example, when I am, uh, when I have a Kindle, you know, when I, uh, when I'm, 
have a Kindle, I don't buy the book. I, I pay for the book. I download it to my Kindle, but it's still in Amazon's possession. If Amazon wants to delete the book on my Kindle, it can do so immediately. And that uh, can be quite frightening because it moves us to, in, to a, a different kind of society, one in which uh, the people lose much of their power, uh, their economic power to influence the governments and to influence the, uh, the, the companies and the firms that provide them with these services. So the sharing economy, to, you know, we are calling it today the sharing economy as if we are all sharing from the good of our hearts. And obviously that's completely wrong. We are not sharing. We are selling. We are renting. We are hiring. Uh, we are, we are uh, uh, offering our merchandise and our assets and our wares uh, to, other, uh, to other people for a certain price. This price is much lower than what it used to be. Uh, because in the, in the past, nobody would have thought about having so many people uh, pro uh, providing these, uh, these services. The, only the big companies could have provided these services. But what happens now is that the big companies create platforms, or I, I'll say it differently, a startup creates a platform, Airbnb, Uber, and, uh, etc. And on this platform, millions and millions of people can offer their services. And what happens very quickly, what, uh, what we see in the digital world, is that we are moving towards um, a, a one-winner-takes-all uh, phenomenon, where there is only one Uber. And you know, they keep telling us that, oh, Uber has a Lyft as a, as a, as a competitor. That's nonsense. Lyft does not, even, does not come anywhere close to, to, the, uh, to, uh, to the level uh, of Uber. We, 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 we see Airbnb. There, is, there are no competitors to Airbnb. Airbnb bought all of its uh, competitors. There are no competitors to Facebook. There are no real competitors to Google. More than 80% of the search volume in the United States and probably in other countries around the world is, is all Google. Um, so what we see is that uh, the sharing economy firms in the digital world, they are exhibiting the one winner takes all effect. And what that means is that they are becoming, those startups, young startups that just, you know, just arrived 10 years ago, they are becoming whales. They are becoming, becoming huge platforms. And we have to ask who is controlling these platforms? For example, let's say that Airbnb doesn't like me. And, uh, you know, maybe I, uh, I, I, I don't know. There, there's been a, an incident in the United States where a racist uh, woman refused, uh, refused, somebody, refused uh, to host somebody. And Airbnb, quite rightly so, by the way, basically for, uh, forbade that person uh, from, uh, you know, from, from hosting other people. And I say again, this, I, I think this is a proper punishment. But then again, what happens when Airbnb doesn't like me? Let's say that I said bad things about Airbnb. I don't like Airbnb. I think they are bad for society. Airbnb can, can ban me from its services. And it doesn't sound so bad unless you look 10 years into the future and you realize that if the one winner takes all effect continues to, to grow, then what's going to happen is that I basically won't be able to you know, to to to, uh, to, be, uh, to go to any city 
and find uh, and, and find apartments at a good price. So we need to ask what uh, where does the power go to? And we've we've seen it with Facebook, we've seen it with Google. We're going to see it with any company that's becoming large in the digital world because these companies are going to become Leviathans. They are going they are going to become uh, what I, I call them uh, the whale the, the shark whales sharks because that's what I call the big companies. They are sharks. They are quick and agile and eager for uh, for the prey. And whales, well, the whales are the governments. They are the ones that are supposed to take care of the citizens. But they are slow and they are cumbersome and awkward and they don't really know technology. When you combine both of them together, you get the, the shark whales. Those are basically um, the big companies, the Google, the Facebook, uh, the Amazon, the Apple, that already have powers that rival those of governments of national territorial governments because they can provide so many services, including financial services and the insurance services and the communication services, infrastructure and ISP services. When you take all of these services together, you basically get a company that can, that can easily compete with a territorial government. And but but these companies are not limited to one territory; they're all over the world. Yes. And this brings us to a very uh, interesting new uh, era in in human history, where I think we're starting to grow to go to to grow away from the idea of territorial nations and move on to different concepts. To different concepts of uh, cloud organizations, of even cloud nations, uh, that uh, we are already starting to see them uh, uh, happening and see and see, see them starting to uh, to be created. For example, uh, for example, uh, with companies like Bit Nation and others. Oh, that's an excellent point you made. I mean, these are the critical risks we are facing because as these technology providers, the technology platform providers become so powerful that yeah. they can destroy, you know, any individual's uh, life uh, and they can take away the their ability to rent or to, you know, lease a car or any any anything, you know, any product or service. Then that is a cause of great concern because we don't have a system that is uh, working right now that would look at all these data points or variables or we don't have effective regulations. We don't have anything uh, that would challenge those technology platform providers. So that as they become more and more powerful and like you said, as they as we start seeing the cloud nations, that is a cause of great concern because the clouds the computer code is connecting everything in cyberspace, geospace, and space. So how are these cloud nations, from your assessment, where do you think uh, these cloud nations are taking us, you know, the traditional nations? Because there is definitely going to be that competition between the traditional nation and the cloud, cloud nation. And how do you see that uh, shaping uh, or changing the fundamentals of how the humans live and how humans work and uh, how how is the governance model and management models and all these regulatory models or justice models all those things how do you think they will be impacted by this uh, emergence of cloud nations as you are talking about 
Well, um, first of all, I have to say that uh, you, you said it's an issue of great concern, and I agree with you. It is something of great concern to think uh, that we need to think about. But I'll use uh, Stuart Brand's uh, wonderful uh, phrase that I'm a pessimist in the short term and an optimist in the long term. And I'm pessimist in the short term because you need someone to be pessimist in the short term. You need someone to show uh, what the problems could be and to think about what could go wrong. But I'm an optimist in the long term because if I am thinking about the problems, I will fix them and I know we'll be able to, to take care of them. Uh, so that's why I'm an optimist in the long term. I think we are going to, to a good place altogether. And, uh, as, uh, you know, you, you said that uh, if, I, uh, if, uh, if uh, the company doesn't like me, then they can just, you know, uh, ruin my life. But that has always been the case with governments as well. And uh, totalitarian governments don't need any excuse, just, just snuff you uh, out uh, as soon as you, excuse me, piss them off. And in, even in democracies, well, even in France, in Germany, in the UK, in the US, in Russia, if you can call that a democracy still, um, in, in all of those places, the government is constantly monitoring everything you do on the internet. Sometimes they need uh, they, they need some uh, you know legal uh, um, uh, uh, some uh, legal excuse in order to collect your data or to or to look uh, or to look at it. But the, you know you're already under the government thumb anyway. If, if the government... I, I I hear you on that. But now we have to worry about the big corporate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. It, it's like more and more entities are watching us all the time. Yeah, I, I know, but, but think about it. You know, 300, 200, 300 years ago, we've had the French Revolution that basically moved things away from the dictatorship, from monarchies to uh, democracies, to representative democracies. And that was a good step. That was, you know, we, we did a good thing uh, because we moved the power from the government to the public a little bit, not by as much as we like to think, but a little bit. And... We are going to, uh, to, to, to continue this movement uh, of uh, the, this uh, shifting of power. We are taking it more and more out of the hands of the governments, of the territorial governments, and we are moving it to other systems, other political uh, systems that can organize people's lives. And those systems seem to be right now the large companies, again, the Google, Amazon, uh, Apple, Uber, uh, Facebook, by the way, Facebook has 2.2 billion people. I mean, that's the largest nation in the world. And right now it's a complete dictatorship where you don't even know the rules. You're, you're not, you don't even know why they're banning you in, in many cases. But, uh, but we are moving forward. I mean, we, we are dealing with it. And in my, in my recent book, I call it Rulers of the Future, I... That's where I, I conceived of the idea of cloud nations. And I said that while we are moving towards cloud nations, the idea will not be, you know, will, will not reach fulfillment before we come upon perfect encryption techniques. Basically te technologies that can provide perfect or as, you know, as close to perfect as possible encryption so that each and every communication that uh, is being uh, conducted between citizens will not be available to the eyes of, the, of, of uh, territorial governments. Because how do territorial governments control us? How do, how do they rule over us? 
they have a monopoly in the territory. And this monopoly, it's a monopoly over force, over power, over communication. And uh, if you're, you know, if, if you want to pay your taxes, for example, to a different country than the one you are living in, good luck with that. The, the government will immediately find that out because they track people's, you know, bank accounts and they and they will put you in jail. That's the monopoly, the power that they have over you because you're in their territory, in the government's territory. But let's say that we can remove this power of the government to track after your transactions, to track after your communications. Suddenly, the government can't know who you are paying your taxes to. It can't know who you're getting your money from. It can't know who, who you are talking with. It, it can't know what's your identity on the online world if everything is encrypted. And once we reach that level of encryption, basically what, what you get is a world in which the territorial monopolies lose their power. They can't track you anymore. And if they can't track you, they will find it more and more difficult to actually enforce the, uh, the, the rules on you in a world that is turning global and international and in which you can walk in every other country through the internet or pay your taxes to other cloud organizations through the internet. So do you see that actually happening because I mean the hope and the wish of everyone who is in the cyberspace working on the digital system is that the blockchain would provide us that decentralized network where, yeah. which will give us trust and transparency and accountability and then you know we want uh, the layers of corruption and the layers of bureaucracy and the waste and abuse and everything that we are seeing in our current systems that we will be able to get rid of it and uh, any new idea innovation and uh, imagination is always welcoming we want these new systems to develop uh, to be developing and we want new technologies new technology platforms to new way of doing things which would you know in the at the end of the day help the you know individuals and entities to you know grow to you know minimize the risk and to manage the risk and to bring on a lot of you know new opportunities a lot of new global economic power and uh, uh, new ways of doing things and beyond our you know earth and go to cyberspace uh, space and then uh, even identify new species that we don't know exist yet you know we go and explore the uh, space and uh, to deep space and we we have so many opportunities there's this technology and platforms and technology tools the advances in science and technology is giving us but at the same time as we see that you know cryptocurrencies and blockchain are threatening the governments and the encryption that you're talking about that you know it would take away the power of governments to monitor the individuals or what the communication is happening across nations that is going to, you know, shake them, you know, from the from its very core because they lose power. They will lose yes. power. So how do you think that the governments are going to react to these new systems that are being developed and uh, the new way of doing things that are emerging and uh, the power slowly, slowly shifting away from them? How do you see that impacting the sharing economy in the coming years? I think they will panic. I think the governments will panic. And, they, and I know they are all already panicking. 
you know, following the Arab Spring, we've seen uh, many, uh, many countries, many governments panicking in the Middle East and in the Gulf area about what, uh, what to do once they see that the power goes to the hands of the citizens and that the citizens can collaborate and work together. So, yeah, the, the, the governments will panic and as I said, they already are. And the most, uh, and, and, and the thing I fear most is that countries will close themselves from the internet, will create an internal internet just for them and will close themselves from the outside world. And we're starting to see it in China, for example, with its great firewall. We're seeing a, a version of it in Russia that is trying to distance itself uh, from uh, the internet, from the, from the World Wide Web. We're seeing it in Europe in a way that is trying to protect its citizens' data so it doesn't let Facebook and Google share this data with the U.S. government uh, at uh, the same level of ease that uh, those companies are sharing other, other people's data from around the world. So this is a very, this is a major concern because if that becomes the case, then it means that the, ter- the territories enforce themselves upon the, the, the cyber world, upon the digital world that its, ma- and, and that its main power and its main advantage is in being open to everyone all over the world. And we need to understand this concern. We need to think about it. We need to think what to do about it. But the, the main force that I believe that will, ma- that will make sure that these territories, even in these territories, there will be, uh, the, the internet will get, get a foothold, the, the global internet, is that um, blockchain-based platforms uh, like the Bitcoin, like Ethereum, like Zcash, like Monero, and so on, they they enable people to send money, to transfer money uh, between uh, between themselves. So they will enable uh, uh, investors in rich countries uh, to support startups in, uh, in, in uh, you know in, in poor countries they will enable uh, tech, uh, ideas to spread and proliferate much more quickly and as uh, the use of blockchain proliferates all over the world and we're already starting to see to see it what it means is that we will have a unified platform we will have a global ledger and, and once you have such a global ledger anyone who is not part of this global ledger is, stays completely outside. For example, there is now um, a collaboration between hundreds of uh, trucking companies and uh, and uh, seafaring companies to create a global ledger that uh, on uh, on which all the information about uh, you know about wares that are being transported and uh, where are, where are all the trucks and where is where is all the merchandise, all of it will be written in this global ledger, and. If you are on that, if you're, you know, let's say that Amazon decides to use that global ledger, or anyone uh, wants to use it, they will know exactly where their product is. They will know, you know, how many hours away it, uh, from them it is. They will know if it got lost anywhere along the way. Once you get exposed to this level of efficiency, you will never want to go back to any to anything less than that. But consider that if you want this level of efficiency, you then every company in the world needs to join this global ledger. You can't have two global ledgers or three global ledgers or 10 global ledgers. You want one global ledger like this, and that means that 
a, a, a great driving force in uh, you know in bringing the blockchain platforms and the internet everywhere is that of standardization and increased efficiency if you want your merchandise your wares to get to where you're sending them if you want people to trust your merchants if you if you want basically to grow your economy you must open your country to the internet and to and to the blockchain and once you open your country you In a way, this is a Trojan horse because your citizens will also be able on this on the internet platforms once they are fully encrypted, uh, they will also be able to form organizations of their own, to form local governments local you know I mean uh, global governments and uh, to vote for a, for represent representation, to create a deliberative democracy and so on. So yeah, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty optimist about uh, the future. Absolutely, absolutely. There is a lot of optimism in the future and the power of that future if we are able to achieve that. But see, the challenge is like you were just you know, talking about that how China is becoming protectionist and they are shutting off the internet to outside and not allowing that uh, interconnectedness and inter, uh, you know, the integrated platforms to be developed and the cloud and the the global ledger that you talked about it's a it's a powerful tool that we will have we will be able to figure out identify pretty much you know uh, reasons behind all the failures that we are having over the years why certain systems fail why uh, our uh, we are not able to get rid of poverty why we are not able to you know cure certain diseases to everything and anything we will be able to have answers because we'll have so much data on our fingertips mm-hmm. and with the use of automation and machine learning and deep learning we will be able to come up with effective answers and solutions to so many complex problems but the challenge is from where i see that no nations is prepared for taking the benefit or taking the advantage of such amazing innovations and technology power that's coming our way so the, when the nation, nations leaders are not ready see the technology uh, community is coming up with great technology platforms and the great way of doing new things but just by having technology platform is not enough we need to have so many parallel developments that means that our nation's leaders need to be first educated aware about all these you know emerging systems and they need to then know that what are the risk emerging as the old or the current system start failing and as the new system starts you know developing what are the risk what kind of turbulence will happen what kind of job losses will happen what kind of changes will be coming to the you know nations to its citizens how will the citizens you know co- cope up with those kind of changes do they know how to cope up with those kind of changes what kind of change management uh, processes and tools are in place to help the nation's citizens to cope up with that and we don't see any of them across any nation even in united states that's why we see so much resistance to you know the advances in technology to the development in technology or to uh, do new way of doing things right now you we see resistance from everywhere uh, half of our country is you know resistance to uh, what is happening uh, in our nation to most of the nations they are uh, having the same uh, issues because the nations leaders lack the capability to lead their nations in this you know technology transformation that is happening all across nations so that's where the biggest challenge is and that is where 
we need to focus if we want to see the true power of the technology uh, that can give us that can the kind of productivity that will emerge the kind of efficiency the kind of new models the new way of government governance or management and how each and every big problem that we are facing across nations in the society not only in geospace but in cyberspace and space we will be able to resolve that if we are able to have that collective intelligence by the global ledger that you are talking about but we we lack the leadership we lack the tools and technology and the parallel processes so even if it seems that technology enabled sharing companies are mainly about technology and people they are not just about technology and people we need to focus on all these different aspects and variables so do you see that do you agree that in order to harness this technology and the technology platforms and global ledger responsibly we need proper leadership at all levels local you know national global across nations is government industries organizations and academia including this technology power houses with their you know culture and ethics and you know uh, proper governance models proper management models absolutely absolutely we need regulators we need smart regulators we need knowledgeable regulators and perhaps most importantly we need regulators who are beholden to the public and not to the big corporations and not to a uh, not to the to the firms and those who can uh, bring lobbyists Uh, to the to the halls of congress uh, around the world but in a way what we're seeing now is a kind of uh, war between two paradigms on the one hand we have the decentralized paradigm we have the blockchain platforms we have the beginning of decentralization the facebook again the, it's, it's the beginning of decentralization and on the other hand we have the completely centralized governments that have be- uh, become used to having all the power and we're asking the governments which represent the will of the people to look after the decentralized platforms which should also represent the will of the people so something is not is, is not mixing properly here because you, you have a you have a two systems each of which has its advantages and disadvantages and we must find the new ba- the new balance basically what we need i would say is we we need the platforms of the future we need the facebook of the future not uh, that which is right now which is a basically a prototype of a social media a prototype of a cloud nation um, but it's actually a, a dictatorship but we need the facebook of the future 10 or 20 years from now which will also have the mechanisms for people to vote uh, to say what they want uh, to see uh, on the happening on the on the network to transfer money and and to sh- and uh, to help each other with basically taxes online taxes taxation and the uh, insurance policies and so on all of these things will come and uh, I, I, they are already starting to appear with some blockchain initiatives again like bitnation uh, like kleros who are trying to create A, a, a wiki style justice system on the cloud so that each of us can judge each other you know uh, uh, when i can open a dispute with you upload it to the cloud and cleros automatically finds juries from around the world who can judge uh, and uh, decide who is right who is wrong and what's the penalty uh, you know for about that what which organization is doing that 
called Kleros. It used to be called Crowd Jury. And if you feel very interesting, I think that would be fascinating, but it also will create a lot of panic because then all the issues, you know, are going to uh, go on the internet and, you know, everybody would be able to. No, 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 no. This kind of system has to, has to be supported by, you know, perfect encryption. Uh And because otherwise, as you say, everyone's information will be on the cloud. That's yeah, not that, something. That would be a concern. And then, and I mean, we do want to see this kind of uh, systems being developed because it will give us so much power to Absolutely. resolve conflicts, you know, easily and, you know, in a rapid fashion. I mean, if you look at nations like India and some other nations, there are so many cases pending. I mean, it would take at least 15, 20 years before, uh, you know, judges are able yeah. to see any case. So if you have this kind of system, Yes. That would make things so much more efficient. So that would be amazing to see yes. that. Uh, but the, this is the yes. justice, the sharing economy of justice. Of the absolutely. justice. Yes, absolutely. We, we do need that because, I mean, we are trying to do, everyone who is working on machine learning and creating algorithms for, uh, you know, all kinds of platforms and problems, they are doing their best. But the problem is that when the data that they are using to create those algorithms and to, you know, have the analytics based on that, if the data is flawed, then, you know, then uh, the algorithms also becomes biased. So in the sharing economy, there are so many concerns about this technology enabled. And I mean, these are usually unintentional. No, no provider or no machine learning scientist is trying to add the bias, you know, purposefully. That is not the case. But unintentionally, it is coming up into these algorithms. And uh, that is a barrier to inclusion because such these hidden biases uh, are, you know, cause of great concern that the challenges that we had in our current systems where racism and, you know, all these kind of biases that were there, that it is also, you know, getting uh, penetrated into this uh, cyber system or digital systems that we are developing and the algorithms are becoming, you know, uh, biased. So do you think that these biased algorithms uh, are going to create... uh, hurdles for the sharing economy, that uh, the sharing economy will not be inclusive because of these uh, biased algorithms? The thing is this. Biased algorithms, there, there are algorithms that are not doing the work properly, uh, that are, um, you know, uh, mista- uh, making mistakes. And that is something else. When it happens, we can fix them. But there are algorithms that just n- notice certain correlations that we don't like to think about. Uh, for example, the level of income uh, in uh, the United States uh, of, uh, of, of people of, of, uh, and, their, uh, and their skin color. And we don't like to think about it, but it is a fact that people of color, I wish it would be uh, di- different, but people of color are usually less wealthy, less wealthy than Caucasian people than, than white people. And the question is, what do we do now about it? Now, the algorithm could deduce very easily that because uh, the level of income is, uh, is lower, the, uh, and the poorer people cr- conduct more violent crimes. So if you are a person of color, you are also have a, a higher uh, chance to conduct some kind of violent crime so we don't want to take you uh, in our taxes, for, uh, for example. I'm not saying that anyone is doing this, but 
if, if an algorithm would have reached this conclusion, it would be a completely logical conclusion. But is this the conclusion that we want our, our society to be based on? Obviously not. We want our society to be equal to, to, to be equal to everyone, to be inclusive. We want everyone to have the same opportunities and chances to, uh, to promote their lives and, and themselves. So what we need to do is to be aware of the biases that these algorithms uh, contain and to, to simply, you know, when these biases do not stand uh, in contradiction to our values, we should allow them, we should consider them, we should understand what they actually, what, what they actually mean. Um, and sometimes we'll see that they are right and uh, we should go along with it. In, in other cases, we want to tell the algorithm, we'll tell the algorithms, ignore certain parameters, ignore a person's color of skin, ignore a person's gender, for example, ignore a person's <laughs> hair or lack of hair. Or last name or first name. Or, or last name or first name or ethnicity. And, and we are, excuse me, and uh, we are uh, seeing uh, in some countries that algorithms are beginning to be used to create a, cer a certain social credit rating system uh, to, and uh, according to which each and every person, you know, is ranked according to their beliefs, according to their religious beliefs, according to how many times they are praying every day. There are even things, things like that. And... Mm -hmm. Which nations are doing that? Is that China or somewhere else you are seeing this? I don't want to, I don't want to go into, into names, but you know, a quick search on the internet will show you, uh, we, we will, will show you everything. And we need to, and, to consider whether we really want to encourage this kind of social rating. And I, I, I want to, you know, lots of people in the, in the left, in the US say that, oh no, social rating, that's horrible, that's bad. That's uh, you know that, that that that's something we should complete. We should uh, we should object to always. But we're always rating each other. Yes. We're, and, and so the, the the real problem is who is determining the parameters according to which you're being ranked. And obviously, right now the government is de defining those parameters and the criteria and the coefficients that if you pray five times a day while facing me Mecca, then you lose 10 points but, uh, instead of gaining five points. So we, again, we as the public need to understand that we are going into a future in which we are all going to be rated. We are all going to be ranked all the time by, all, by everything that we do in our day-to-day -day life in our house and outside the house. And we need to start to demand control over the param parameters and over the algorithms. We need to demand transparency so that we'll know what the, according to, to what parameters those algorithms are going to rank us. And yes, if we absolutely. don't do that, then we are going to give the power either to the governments, and that's a bad thing. We don't want to return 300 years into the past. Or we are going to give it to someone, you might say, even worse, to those global companies, to cloud nations that will become cloud dictatorships without us having any say 
uh, in the uh, in the regime in the digital uh, in the digital powers that control us. No, I hear you on that. You are absolutely right. That we, I mean, th- this is where we are heading. Sooner or later, it is going to happen that we all will be ranked. We all will be judged by you know our behavior in the house, outside the house, everywhere. And <clears throat> sorry, there will be rating system. Whether we like it or not, it is emerging. You are right about that. And as you said, you, that we do need to be very cautious about what parameters we are allowing in that rating system. Who is defining the rating system? Who is de- designing the rating system? That's where we'll have to be very careful because just by praying, you don't become bad. By, you know, what makes you bad? What, takes a, what should take your point down? What should take your point up? Those are the things we should define it very carefully. And that's what I think this collective intelligence and collective capability, you know, collective uh, voice would play a big role because we all come so many, we come from very different diverse cultures and different nations and different way of life and different uh, uh, way of uh, doing things. So we need to, as the digital global age is helping us to become one big global community, it is going to take years before we ha- all share our culture, our values, our religion. It's going to take probably centuries. So in the meantime, just because we do certain things uh, the way we do here in the United States or we do certain things the way uh, nations in Middle East uh, you know, do or in Europe or you know, Asia or Africa, who decides and who defines what is the right way to go forward? So those are the fundamental questions that we have to be working on as we develop these new systems and new way of doing things. And these systems are for the good of the humanity. But at the same time, if we don't define and design them properly, then it is going to create chaos and it's going to create a lot of pushback and resistance. So that is something where we all need to start thinking how these visionaries and thinkers and, you know, this uh people who are actively trying to develop these technology platforms and we have to make sure that you know future is that they start talking to each other about this that how should we do these things how how should we create a fair system of rating but uh, that's a topic of you know another discussion because there's so much there's so much to talk in that and this one hour is not going to be enough let's go back to the sharing economy how big is the sharing economy market currently from your assessment from based on the all the services we are providing products you know that we are physical assets that we are sharing how big is the market well i can't uh, talk about you know each and every company in the market obviously but let's just look at airbnb as an example to uh, to what happens when a company takes assets and opens them uh, to the public so just about airbnb um, let's see, we have, uh, we have more than 150 million people who are using Airbnb, and that's just in nine years or so since Airbnb was, uh, was created. We have uh, almost a million people who are uh, offering their apartments, and every night you have more than 500,000 people who are sleeping in, uh, in, uh, in cities all over the world using Airbnb's services. And compare that to uh, to uh, some of the you know large uh, hotel uh, networks like Hilton, Marriott, Intercontinental. Even the largest of those only offer the uh, about seven hundred thousand rooms all over the world, and they are never at full capacity. So what we are seeing here is uh, that if you if you are opening a certain asset 
to the uh, to the public you and the, that asset is owned by the public itself you can disrupt huge industries that uh, previously were completely uh, completely immune uh, to disruption so Airbnb you have uber etc 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 and I, w- I would say that the sharing economy again you know it's in its diapers it's taking its baby steps right now and as we see technology progressing we are going to see new kinds of sharing economy we've talked about the sharing economy for example of justice systems that we may that we may soon see because you are going to pay a few dollars to each of the jury members to get that quick justice that you want we are going to see sh- a sharing economy of products and Because we're starting to talk about autonomous cars and autonomous drones right autonomous aerial drones and all the companies today the delivery companies today are working on aerial drones that will be able to deliver a certain uh, product for one dollar or less and will it will take just uh, one hour to also uh, for the product to get to you and when it costs just one dollar, To get a product from one side of the city to the other suddenly you can have a sharing economy because the the price of delivering the product that's nothing that's almost ne- almost negligible so we're we are already thinking about ideas like subscriptions you know like Amazon Prime for sharing products uh, for example if I want a mixer you know I want to to make it to bake a cake how many times do I do that in a year I don't know maybe five times ten times and Why do I need to buy a mixer of my own for you know five hundred dollars? That's a lot of money if I only if I am only using it five or ten times a year. So what's going to happen is that it's much better for me to sign up some kind of a smart contract or a subscription, whether it's with Amazon Prime or with a, a large network of people around the city. And to agree that if I want a mixer, I can just go to my computer, click on the button. And in one hour, I will get the mixer driven to me or flown to me and put straight, you know, or outside my door. I will use it. I will clean it a little and I will put it back outside the door, click the button, and it's, it's flown away to the next person in line. So this is a sharing economy of other products and not just, uh, not just uh, uh, cars and, uh, and uh, rooms. As the, as the digital technologies become uh, more, uh, more pervasive everywhere, as everyone is getting connected, as the Internet of Things keeps on progressing, we are going to be able to share everything. And by the way, I, I'm, just, I'm looking right now at my bookshelf, uh, my bookshelves. <laughs> I have all these books. Most of them I'm not reading most of the time. Why do we need even libraries when we can s- deliver books between each other uh, so, so easily? So... Yeah. So you're right. I mean, maybe each subdivision, we can create a library that everyone can share. And that will be collective, right? And that will also help us create that community feeling. So you are right that, you know, those kind of uh, ideas are uh, very welcoming. But at the same time, when we talk about products, like, let's say, you know, we don't need the turkey fryer every single day. Only during Thanksgiving we need, right? Those kind of things. But then on that day, there will be so much demand. So if there are only few turkey fryers, then, you know, there will be a challenge. So those kind of issues uh, and processes we'll have to figure out how to do that. But the, uh, at the core, the concept is amazing that we don't need to waste our resources 
I mean, yes, some product manufacturers are not going to like this because they won't be able to sell the products in the large numbers as they were doing before. But we also have to see why we need to waste resources. So if we, we do want efficiency and productivity in our system. So these are all very welcoming ideas. But as we go forward, there is a lot of, you know, uh, there are a lot of challenges that we'll have to overcome. I mean, we don't have enough time today to talk about all the benefits that we would get or all the case studies or uh, to give an uh, overview to our viewers and listeners about what is happening in the world or understand the critical risks that are emerging from the sharing economy. Uh, we will hopefully, you know, have uh, some other session for that. But what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, especially those young minds and uh, who are so driven uh, and they're so, you know, trying to solve the big complex problems that the world is facing? Uh, what would you like to tell them about the power of this uh, uh, new concept about sharing economy, about the power of the technology tools that we have from blockchain to machine learning to Internet of Things to uh, big data? And what would you like to tell them how to use these and how to create new systems? What would you like to share with them? It will take an entire book of, or two or three to, to talk about all of these things. But I will say one very important thing serve the public and the public will serve you. Create an, a system that can promote a certain ideology, can prom promote knowledge, can promote a betterment of humanity, and people will flock to it. And we're seeing it in Wikipedia. Uh, you, you know, uh, Wikipedia is a great idea. It's working. Uh, millions of people are, are writing knowledge for other people completely free. No one is getting paid. No one, and it's it's amazing. Now, if you think about it, uh, other other uh, companies tried the wiki style uh, uh, as as well, and you and there was uh, one uh, one uh, journal. I think it was the New York, New York Times, but I'm not sure that tried to create a wikitorial, a wiki wiki editorial that people will go on to, onto it, and you know, and uh, will uh, create an editorial. It was. Horrible. It was a horrible experiment. It uh, died almost immediately because vandalists kept on um, uh, logging in and destroying everything that uh, that other people, that good contributors, uh, wrote there. And on Wikipedia, it doesn't happen that way because people feel like they have a purpose. They have a goal. They, they are serving other people. They know nobody is making a profit. And in the New York Times or, the, or whatever uh, journal did this, people knew that somebody was making a profit off of their writing. So nobody had, you know, really, nobody was patriotic enough, was, uh, was uh, imbued with a sense of righteous justice enough to keep on fighting the vandals. It just didn't, uh, it just didn't work. So... And if you're asking me what is my message to the youth, to the young entrepreneurs, to the startupists and so on, I'm telling them this. Think about how to create the platforms of the future. You, you, if you want to, you know, if you want to be the big winners, you need to create platforms and allow the river of people to flow through those platforms and to, and to serve a certain purpose. But while you're creating these platforms, be very aware of the fact that people are not fools anymore. They are not willing to do, uh, you know, your work for you. They will want to know that they are serving some greater good on those platforms, 
And if not, then they will want to be compensated as they rightfully should. So think about how to create the platforms of the future by either compensating the public or by serving a greater goal and a greater purpose that hopefully will serve all of us. I think that is an absolutely amazing advice and the very powerful words that serve the public and public will serve you. And I see the wisdom in that because when we launched Risk Roundup uh, in November 2016, that time, uh, you know, we our only goal was that we want to create education awareness of the critical risk emerging, security risk emerging, because uh, it's not just security is not about only cybersecurity or information security, but all the models that are changing, systems that are changing, new way of doing things are emerging, are creating so many critical risks. And people, if decision makers or individuals are not aware of it then, or nations are not aware of it, then they cannot be proactively prepared and they all will, you know, have uh, existential risk to their systems, to their business models, to their nations. So that was the reason why we launched this Roundup. And uh, we we had amazing, amazing support in It's, uh, I think, uh, not even two years yet, the our Risk Roundup initiative. And uh, we, when we launched it, we had 10,000 followers. I had 10,000 followers. Today, I have more than 150,000. That is only because of the positive message we are trying to give, what we are trying to educate and create awareness. And we are trying to serve the public, just like you said, the greater good of, for the greater good of the humanity. That's what we are doing. And that's what everyone across nations can do. Have a big mission, try to solve the big problem. And uh, uh, we can solve so many problems together collectively. That is the power that the digital global age is giving us. All these technology tools and platforms are giving us the power of collective intelligence, collective uh, collaborative, collaboration. And uh, there is nothing that we cannot uh, solve or we cannot do if we all pitch in our efforts and if we all work together. So thank you so much, Dr. Cezana, for thank participating you. in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on sharing economy and our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the understanding you provided on the state of sharing economy and the benefits and uh, uh, the powerful systems that we can develop, even if a single individual or entity can understand the forces behind the sharing economy and is able to innovate based on the understanding they receive from this discussion we had today. This risk kind of dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Thank you. Wonderful. So as the sharing economy contributes to some of the most profound innovations in recent times, and while focus must remain on improving trust and uh, transparency, it is important that we evaluate the broader security risk emerging from the sharing economy model. Risk groups, cybersecurity, geosecurity, and space security risk research centers are created for these very reasons to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk-facing NGIOA and CGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they all walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts fit into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, 
it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risks together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.